You'd like to think that when one of those highly touted, outrageously expensive new nuclear builds is getting underway, that at minimum, the design would have been thoroughly vetted by every imaginable expert to make certain that problems would have been anticipated and prevented before day one of the new build. But then you learn about the United Kingdom's Hinkley Point C, which will be the most expensive power station in the world, and you hear... What they found when they examined the design more closely was they found that there were actually quite a few pretty insurmountable problems. And instead of it being a technical process where they turned around and said, okay, we have to resolve these issues before we can go ahead because these are issues that will lead to cost and time overruns. Because that wasn't politically expedient, the government just moved over the guy who was in charge quietly said, we'll revisit these issues later, and said, ta-da, the design's all spick and span. When it most definitely is not. Well, when you hear a genuine expert on the matter tell you how mucked up this new nuclear build already is, you realize that no matter what happens with Brexit, the people of the UK and all the rest of us will be stuck in the seat that we all share. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, as Brexit looms over the United Kingdom, we learn about another pending boondoggle in that country, the Hinkley Point C nuclear power plant. We'll be talking with Nikki Clark, one of the founders of the group Stop New Nuclear, about what's so wrong with this particular new nuclear build and what her group is doing to try to stop it. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information then currently qualifies as a U.S. national emergency, though maybe it should. All of this coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, February 19, 2019, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting off in the U.S., where the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's Republican majority in a 3-2 vote, approved a stripped-down version of a rule originally intended to protect U.S. nuclear facilities against extreme natural events, such as the massive earthquake and tsunami that triggered meltdowns at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant in Japan in March of 2011. The commission majority struck a provision requiring plant owners to protect their facilities from the real-world hazards they face today instead of design basis hazards that were estimated using now-obsolete information and methodologies when the plants were built decades ago. 
The commission's majority act will leave unresolved how the NRC will address new information showing that plants may experience bigger floods and earthquakes than they are now required to withstand. Dr. Edward Lyman, senior scientist and acting director of the Nuclear Safety Project of the Union of Concerned Scientists, said, Nearly eight years after the Fukushima accident, the NRC continues to disregard a critical lesson. Nuclear plants must be protected against the most severe natural disasters they could face today, not those estimated 40 years ago. Reevaluation of seismic and flooding hazards at nuclear reactors found that roughly two-thirds of U.S. nuclear plants face hazards beyond what they were originally designed to handle, including higher flood levels from extreme precipitation, upstream dam failure, and storm surge. In Massachusetts last October, a regulating valve malfunctioned at the Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station, causing an automatic reactor shutdown. NRC investigators discovered the malfunction was caused by 13 locking pins in the valve, which employees had installed backwards. Well, we all know nuclear is a backwards technology, but still. According to an inspection report just issued by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and released last Wednesday, February 13, what they called a deficiency was assessed at more than minor and that corrective actions to address the issues were developed after a similar failure in 2016, but were not adequately carried out. And according to NRC apologist uh, spokesman Neil Sheehan, he wrote in an email that energy continues to improve performance at the station. You know, that's a pretty low bar to set, Neil. Pilgrim is scheduled to permanently shut down on May 31st, It should only make it that long, and know that that's not a moment too soon. On Valentine's Day, February 14, PSEG Nuclear in New Jersey demanded a sweetheart deal. It rebuked opponents of its bid for lucrative subsidies from ratepayers to keep its three nuclear power stations open, vowing to close the units unless each is awarded financial incentives beginning as soon as this fall or else they're going to hold their breath until they turn blue and pass out, and it will be all your fault. In a 44-page response filed with the New Jersey Board of Public Utilities, PSEG said the financial information provided demonstrated that the plants will not cover future costs and risks, and PSEG was thus qualified to receive subsidies of up to $300 million a year. Excuse me, but I thought in a capitalist society such as the United States still is, if a company can't cut the mustard, they have to close up and throw away the jar. And according to PSEG, the reactors could begin shutting down prior to refueling outages as early as this fall for Hope Creek, next spring for Salem 2, and in the fall of 2020 for Salem 1. Unfortunately... Last spring, Governor Phil Murphy of New Jersey signed a bill that set up a system whereby nuclear units could qualify for such subsidies. To be continued. In Arizona, we've just learned that for nearly two decades at the Grand Canyon, tourists, employees, and children on tours at the National Parks Museum Collection Building passed by three paint buckets unaware that they were being exposed to radiation. The five-gallon containers were brimming with uranium ore. 
Although federal officials learned this last year, the park safety director alleges nothing was done to warn park workers or the public that they might have been exposed to unsafe levels of radiation. All was finally revealed in a rogue email sent to all Park Service employees on February 4th by Elston Swede Stevenson, the safety, health, and wellness manager, who described the alleged cover-up as a top management failure and wrote, If you were in the Museum Collections building between the year 2000 and June 18 of 2018, you were exposed to uranium by OSHA's definition. The radiation readings exceed the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's safe limits. The containers were stored next to a taxidermy exhibit where children on tours sometimes stop for presentations, sitting next to uranium for 30 minutes or more. By Stevenson's calculations, those children could have received radiation doses in excess of federal safety standards within three seconds, and adults could have suffered dangerous exposures in less than half a minute. More Grand Canyon news, the Washington Post op-ed section published a piece by Cindy McCain and Mark Udall that reads, The clock is ticking on a 20-year ban on new mining claims on about 1 million acres of public land surrounding the National Park, meaning the Grand Canyon. Thousands of uranium claims were put on hold in 2012 because of mounting evidence that uranium mining in the headwaters of Grand Canyon creeks can contaminate life-giving seeps and springs in the desert basins below. Five federal agencies recommended the temporary halt to new uranium claims to allow more time to assess the impacts of active and abandoned mines, adding, they went on to report that 96% of Arizonans agree that keeping public lands and waters healthy benefits the Arizona economy and quality of life, and nearly two-thirds support the ban on new uranium claims around the Grand Canyon, including 56% of Republicans, 67% of Independents, and 69% of Democrats. And an important piece put out by the Environmental Working Group, 170 million in U.S. drink radioactive tap water. Trump nominee faked data to hide cancer risks. We'll have a link up to this doozy on the website, NuclearHotSeat.com under this episode, number 400. Over to Japan, where headline news is that Rikako Aiki, one of Japan's most talented swimmers and a contender for multiple medals at the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, has been diagnosed with leukemia. The 18-year-old, who was named Japanese Swimmer of the Year last month, won six gold medals at last year's Asia Games and has been expected to challenge for honors at her home Olympics. Here's the thing. The first version of this article that I saw included information about where she trained, which was in proximity to Fukushima Daiichi and the radioactive waters released from there. And there was some conjecture about whether that proximity had any impact at all on the fact that she has developed leukemia, which is one of the first cancers to show up after exposure to ionizing radiation from a nuclear accident. But when I went to pull the story, not only was the information not there, it was apparently scrubbed from the Internet because we haven't been able to find any reference to it. So first of all, this indicates that there was concern and there is a possible connection, though we cannot prove it at this time. And two, if anyone has a copy of that original article, please send it to info at nuclearhotseat.com and we will follow up. In the meantime, our hope for a speedy recovery to Rikako Aiki. On February 14, Tokyo Electric Power Company, 
TEPCO, announced that they managed to contact the molten nuclear fuel on the bottom of the primary containment vessel for Reactor 2 at Fukushima Daiichi. No data about the radiation level has been published. The specialized machine contacted the scattered fuel debris at 10 locations in the bottom of a pedestal part. However, the exact locations of those 10 points are not defined even by TEPCO, and the location of the remaining 98% of the nuclear fuel remains unknown. You sure you want to go to those Olympics? And now... Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, none that's out of week. Wondering what to do for your next vacation? An official at the Japan National Tourism Organization says there is growing interest among foreign tourists for a tour in English to former evacuation zones in the northeastern Japan prefecture of Fukushima. So there is a tourism company called Not World Co. And it's spelled K-N-O-T, but it's got to be somebody's idea of a joke. This company is based in Tokyo and has designed this particular tour from a desire to encourage more people to, quote, hear the local voices and see the area's damage and recovery. But who's curating their voices and what they get to say? And how can you see recovery from radiation when you can't see radiation? In other words, without realizing it, or maybe they do, but still maybe they don't, the strategy of the organizers of these tours is to participate fully in the Japanese government's aim to make believe that radioactivity is not there, or if it is, eh, it's not dangerous. Unfortunately, in the first year, some 200 people from 23 countries have already participated. And of course, the goal is to get everyone to come on down for the 2020 Radioactive Tokyo Olympics. The Kyoto News article goes on to say that various thoughts are voiced in Fukushima Prefecture without identifying who is voicing these thoughts. And they are, We would really like the tourists to come not out of casual interest, but to truly learn the issue. And please also turn your attention to the fact that our lives before the accident has not returned. But no one is using the N-word, nuclear, or the R-word, radiation. And that's why, not World Company, based in Tokyo, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. Over to Russia, where that country is planning to build dozens of unmanned nuclear torpedoes capable of delivering a thermonuclear cobalt bomb of up to 200 megatons. This according to Russian state media. Detonation of such a bomb could be enough to create a tsunami wave 500 meters tall and poison miles of coastline. The American CIA has, of course, moved to brush away fears over its capability, saying it will not change the status quo as Russia already has missiles capable of striking U.S. cities. Oh, that makes me feel so much better! Norwegian authorities have reported trace amounts of radioactive iodine-131 in the atmosphere, this information emerged last week in measurements taken in the country's far northeast near the city of Tromsø. The half-life of iodine-131 is seven days, and it takes ten half-life cycles for it to become completely inert, meaning there's a 70-day cycle of exposure here. This implies that the source of the higher measurements can't be too far from the city, but the source of these emissions remains unknown. 
In Canada, nuclear promoters are desperately hoping to revitalize their failing industry by launching a new generation of hitherto untested small nuclear reactors across Canada and the world. According to Dr. Gordon Edwards of the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility, this is intended to accelerate resource extraction in highly vulnerable northern regions of Canada to power hundreds of isolated northern communities, including indigenous communities, and to salvage the nuclear industry. For this, they of course need government funds and federal commitment. But First Nations people are having none of it. Just 15 days after the government and the industry published a roadmap to this envisioned future, First Nations Chiefs of Ontario, meeting in a special chief's assembly at the Union of Ontario Indians in Toronto, passed a resolution that included the following points. Nuclear reactors, regardless of size, produce products and waste material that are potentially toxic and dangerous to human health for thousands of years. The First Nations of Ontario oppose the construction and operation of these reactors. The First Nations of Ontario have a duty to protect the health of their citizens today and into the future. Therefore, be it resolved that the chiefs in assembly demand that the nuclear industry abandon its plans to operate small modular nuclear reactors in Ontario and elsewhere, demand that the Government of Canada cease funding and support for this program, and appropriate staff to work to oppose the Canadian nuclear industry and advocate for the abandoning of this program. As First Nations tribes in Canada and Native American people in the United States have known for a long time, nuclear does not pass the seven generations test. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, with the 40th anniversary of the Three Mile Island nuclear reactor meltdown coming up at the end of March, I'm planning to return, bear witness, talk with people, interview them, and then bring you the full story. I want to bear witness as I meet up with others who lived through that horrifying experience and still are living with its aftermath. There are so many stories from Three Mile Island that haven't been told, that need to be told, and that's what I want to do when I'm there and bring the stories back to you. Now I'm asking for your help to get me to Three Mile Island. I have to book my flights before the end of this week, and the duration of my stay is dependent upon the funds I raise to cover airfare, ground transportation, housing, meals. Without your support, I won't be able to go, and this historic time at Three Mile Island will be gone forever without a comprehensive audio record. So if you can help, please do it now so I can take advantage of the last days of lower airfares to get myself to Three Mile Island in Pennsylvania for the 40th anniversary. Now we make it easy to donate. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red donate button to make a one-time donation of any size or to set up an automatic recurring donation of any size. And for those of you who wish to support the show on an ongoing basis, there's a big green donate button that with just a few simple clicks allows you to set up a recurring donation of just $5 a month, about the same that you'd pay for a cup of coffee here in the United States with a tip to the barista. I need to make my decision about Three Mile Island very soon, so please, I urge you, if you wish to support my work there, 
Don't wait. Do whatever you can to help now, and know that you have my gratitude. Here's this week's featured interview. Nikki Clark is one of three founding members of the UK Direct Action Group, Southwest Against Nuclear. It came into existence in 2010 in response to government plans to go ahead with a program of new nuclear reactor builds. She's been involved in anti-nuclear campaigning for the best part of 17 years, during which time she's been arrested and taken to court over her actions against Trident submarines, which are the UK's nuclear bomb delivery device. Note that when she refers to EDF, she's talking about the French nuclear company that took control of the UK's nuclear energy generation in 2009. Nikki Clark, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you, Libby. Tell us first what your position is within the British-based anti-nuclear groups. I'm one of three people who set up and founded a direct action group called Southwest Against Nuclear, which was born in 2010 in response to the UK government's plans for new nuclear reactors. Before that, I was involved with Stop Hinkley, which is a long-running local anti-nuclear campaign. So I've been involved with the anti-nuclear movement for the best part of about 17 years. I'm opposed to nuclear power and also nuclear weapons and I've been arrested many times for uh, my activities to do with both. What is the current situation for nuclear in the UK? The current situation with nuclear in the UK, Libby, is quite interesting at the moment. Um, we've seen Moorside and Wolver, two, two of the other reactors that were planned for the UK, potentially being dropped, although they're not completely dropped. So. Hitachi were the company to build one of them and the Horizon Consortium was the consortium to build the other. And Moorside was the first one to peel away and then Wolver more recently. They're not completely gone in that it's all about the money. The UK government has always told the taxpayers, or for the last 10 years at least, has promised taxpayers here that we wouldn't have to pay for a nuclear program, that if we were going to have one, it was only going to be if it was privately built by the people who wanted to build them. And we all know that that's not really the thing that no reasonable capitalist would want to invest in a nuclear reactor because they're not really a profitable thing, apart from the corruption. You know, if they're run properly, they're not profit-making. Yeah, the problems for them really started after Fukushima. RWE Eon pulled away from wanting to build in the UK. And so what our government's trying to do at the moment is it's trying to move to a similar model for financing nuclear new build that you run in the States, um, where the ratepayers pay for it up front. So that's what the industry and that's what Hitachi and Horizon and the government are pushing for here so that's the, the the ones that are on the drawing board so to speak which also includes sizewell which is the sister project to hinkley which is where i live so i live in somerset and hinkley c which is touted to be the most expensive object on the planet is currently under construction here although even though it's under construction again it seems like that's not all as straightforward and that could fall apart at any minute too. 
Well, we all know that just because a nuclear reactor is under construction, there's no guarantee that it will ever be finished or yeah. that it will be finished on time and certainly never on budget. What is happening regarding so-called new nuclear in the UK? So the only thing under construction in the whole program, the government identified 10 sites out of that. We're looking at plans for a solid four or five, which is Moorside, Wolver, Hinkley, Sizewell, and possibly Oldbury. And the only one that's actually moving at all is Hinkley where I live except that that's a bit of smoke and mirrors as well I don't know how closely you've managed to to follow the vagaries of the UK program Libby unfortunately it's so complex and so at a distance that we haven't been following it perhaps as closely as we might which is why we're talking with you today to get yeah. brought up to speed on it these things are always quite complicated but because the government have been saying that there'll be no public money, they keep trying to throw money at it whilst pretending that they're not really. So it's kind of, we'll subsidise it, but we won't call it a subsidy. So for example, one of the things is, they've guessed at what the price for electricity will be at distant points in the future, which obviously it's hard to model the prices of electricity even 12 months into the future, let alone 35 years. So they came up with a figure that they liked, which wasn't the real figure. The real figure was much higher, of £92 per megawatt hour. This was the price that they decided electricity would be selling for when Hinkley is generating. And so they set it up that if when it's generating, it's not making profit, then EDF will get the profit and it will get the profit from us, the UK taxpayer as i understand it that would be through our taxes that are raised by government and if it was making profit then edf would just get to keep that profit so either way all roads lead to a profit for edf but that's not the whole picture so what we know about building nuclear reactors is that they're never built on time and they're never built to budget and the government was adamant that that wouldn't happen here and they <laughs> Yeah, I know. They set up a process, it's supposed to be a technical process, called a generic design assessment. So this was where they got the nuclear regulators to take a really detailed look at the specifications for the design and the cost overruns and the time overruns is that they end up making changes while they're building. So their idea was, well, if we really nail the design, then there won't need to be any changes and um, we won't have these cost and time overruns. And um, what they found when they examined the design more closely was they found that there were actually quite a few pretty insurmountable problems. And instead of it being a technical process where they turned around and said, okay, we have to resolve these issues before we can go ahead because these are issues that will lead to cost and time overruns, because that wasn't politically expedient, the government just moved over the guy who was in charge, quietly said, we'll revisit these issues later, and said, ta-da, you know, the design's all spick and span. So what the government then had to do is they, knowing full well that they haven't really resolved these issues, they promised EDF that if EDF could get their French reactor at Flamanville working by 2019, 
that then our government would subsidise, but it's not a subsidy because subsidies aren't subsidies in the nuclear world, that our government would then subsidise the time and cost overruns. And then for the rest of the money that they were looking for, our government turned to China. <laughs> In turning to China, they agreed that China could build an experimental reactor oh. here in the UK. I know it's mad, isn't it? So Hinckley is dependent on finance from China. It's dependent on money from our state, which is in turn dependent on a reactor in France operating. That reactor in France is the one that you've probably heard a bit about, Flamanville. They've had lots of problems, too much carbon in the steel, but then they installed the reactor anyway. And the government, the regulators are trying to get it through to be turned on. They've just announced a delay in turning Flamanville on, not another delay until 2020. So the deadline that our government gave isn't going to be met. However, I'm sure the government will do what they always do, which is move the goalposts <laughs> rather than say, oh, we didn't meet that target and we can't do that now. So yeah. let me just recap that yeah. in order for Hinckley to move forward, the UK yeah. government has kind of rolled over complaints about the design saying, ah, we'll deal with that later, which of yeah. course they rarely if ever do. They are dependent on money from China, which wants to build an experimental reactor. Why they won't build it in China is a good question, but they want to build it in the UK. And everything is dependent on the Flamanville nuclear reactor yeah. in France being turned on when it has been discovered that there are corrupted elements of it and pieces of it with substandard steel or steel that contains yeah. more carbon than it's supposed to. So mm -hmm. everything's being put back, everything's dependent on everything else, and nothing seems to be under the control of either the UK government or anybody who's rational about nuclear in your country. Absolutely. I mean, at the moment, Libby, you could be forgiven for thinking that climate change doesn't exist, nuclear technology doesn't exist, because the only thing we hear about in the UK at the moment is Brexit. And that's been that way for the last two years. It sounds like things are in the midst of a bureaucratic mess and a technological mess. Is this nuclear reactor still moving forward? Well, it depends on who you speak to, Libby, and where you are. I live in Bridgewater, which is a town close to the reactor, about 10 miles away. And the project is very late. This project was promised. In fact, Vansan de Rivas, the head of EDF, said that we'd be cooking our Christmas turkeys with electricity from Hinckley by 2017. And they said they were going to build these reactors in about six years. So because of all of the toing and froing about the money, this is a huge project, Libby. I, I don't know whether I can, I'm just trying to think about how to communicate the scale of the project. Well, the most expensive object in Earth, the biggest building project in the whole of Europe. So that, as you can imagine, there's an awful lot of associated infrastructure to support the building of the project. So in the town where I live, they were supposed to have built accommodation for the workers. And we have a situation in our town at the moment where if you were trying to find somewhere to live here or your children were trying to move out, 
and live independently, that would be extremely difficult for you right now because the town is inundated with Hinkley workers who aren't living in the purpose-built accommodation. They're living in whatever private accommodation there is in the town. And that accommodation is under construction right now. So for me, living here in Bridgewater, if I didn't know the things I knew, I'd think that it was all going ahead. However, if you listen to the politicians talking on BBC Radio 4 about it, there's a lot of umming and ahhing about what's going to happen about Hinkley. And that's where people like myself who, you know, follow these issues very closely are aware that it's a bit of smoke and mirrors. I mean, our government have given consent to this project. I think I've been interviewed with a, oh, and the government just said yes kind of interview multiple times. I mean, you know, how many times do you actually consent one project? So it's not a done deal. You know, it ain't over till the fat lady sings, as they say. In terms of the anti-nuclear movement and the group that you are with that you helped to co-found pushing back against this what are you doing to stop the fat lady from singing so the reason i've come onto your show today is to talk a little bit about what our plans are in 2011 in the wake of fukushima a bunch of us activists from different campaigns around the uk got together and we created a campaign called the stop new nuclear campaign We had our first protest there in October 2011, six months after the disaster. And then we had another protest a year after the disaster. We had over a thousand people there. And then about 18 months after the disaster, we had another protest where we trespassed on the development site and had 10 people arrested. A lot of that stuff was done in the time when we were really hoping to influence policy and stop the build from going ahead. So... We've been a little bit quiet and sort of regrouping for the last little while while we work out what to do next. And so in order to have a new nuclear build programme, one of the things our government has had to do is persuade people that the issue of nuclear waste isn't really an issue. And therefore, it's justified to have a new build programme making more waste. So one of the things our government spent, they've had many failed searches the nuclear waste dumps where they say we're going to find a dump they find somewhere no one's happy with it it fails and they go back to the drawing board that's happened at least two or three times in the last 20 years and each time i don't know about how this works for you in the states Libby, but here in the uk you know the saying all roads lead to rome well in the uk all roads for nuclear waste lead to Sellafield, which is where our nuclear waste is currently stored. We have a different policy here in the UK to that of the States. I think, am I right, Libby, in thinking that in the States, you keep all of your waste at the sites where it's made? Currently, yes. And that's in dry cask storage. Most of it is still in spent fuel pools, which are, they're submerged in water. Some are in casks. There are a lot of problems with the casks that have been chosen. There's a lot of problem with overcrowding in the spent fuel pools. And I put spent in quotes because there's plutonium in all of them. One of the things we have been hearing is that there is supposed to be dumping of radioactive mud off the coast of Wales. How does that fit in with what we are discussing about Hinkley? 
So it does and it doesn't fit in. It does fit in in the sense that it's, it's waste being dumped, but this is waste. This is contaminated sediment. So basically all of the discharges from Hinkley are discharged into the Severn Estuary, which is a major body of water that is a concentrating environment. And what I mean by that is there's not much of an exchange of sediment between the estuary and the open ocean. So it's like very fine particles, which are clay. Anyone who knows their chemistry or their soil chemistry will know that those kind of particles have a strong attraction to pollutants. So a lot of the pollution that comes out of Hinkley is sequestered in the mud that's in the estuary adjacent to the station. So that mud they've dredged from around the station in order to build the outlet, the discharge pipe for the new station. And they've taken that into the, kind of across the bay towards Wales, which is just, just north of Hinkley, basically. As the crow flies, it's really close. You can see it really clearly on a clear day. They've gone into the dumping ground, the dredging ground, and they're dumping, they've dumped the mud, the radioactive mud there. In terms of the government's plans about nuclear waste, just to, for clarity for the listeners, when I talk about that, I'm talking about high-level spent fuel that's been generated by our nuclear reactors and by our weapons programs. What does happen to the so-called spent fuel rods that come out of the nuclear reactors in the UK that we all know aren't completely spent because they've got plenty of radioactive plutonium in them left to spend? Yeah, they, they certainly are good to go. Um, so that's where our program differs from your program, Libby, in the, here in the UK, the fuel comes out of the reactor, it goes into the pond, you know, because it's obviously mega hot when it comes out. It sits in the pond for about six months in wet storage. And then once it's cooled sufficiently, after about six months, then they ship it to Sellafield, which is on the Cumbrian coast of the west of England, just below Scotland. If you were looking at a map of the UK, the bureaucrats in London think that that's about as far away as you can get from London. So that's where they like to do hideous things, really, is that cynical, their decision making. And so Sellafield was a former munitions works. It's a reprocessing plant. You know, that's where they were extracting the plutonium to stick in the bombs. So most of our waste, unlike yours, where yours is like mostly in pools or in dry storage, most of ours, I think, has been dissolved in nitric acid for plutonium reprocessing and is in some hellish liquid mobile state. There are pools with fuel, with Magnox fuel in them at Sellafield. Magnox is from the first generation of reactors we had. We had Magnox reactors and then we had advanced gas cooled reactors, which are what the current reactors in the UK are, which is a bit different to the States because the States has got a lot of boiling water and power water reactors so yeah we have magnox so there's there are spent fuel pools that are open air pools at Sellafield. Uh, we've got some amazing photos we could share with you of those i was so shocked i just always envisage these pools being like indoor things and so to see that they're just all out to the open air was yeah quite a, quite a thing and just last week Greenpeace in France landed flares, danger flares, using a drone on top of spent fuel pool at Le Havre. 
And that just goes to show, and those are covered pools, how lax the security truly is should a terrorist decide to do something nasty with all of that radioactive material. Well, fortunately, Libby, here in the UK, we don't need terrorists. All we need is the UK government because the state of the waste at Sellafield has, has led to workers who work at Sellafield have leaked. I mean, the photographs I'll get for you that you can stick up on your website, if you like. I do. Those photos were taken by a worker and these are of the state of, you know, Sellafield's been in operation. It's, it's as old as Rocky Flats. It's like 19... 40s 1950s that's how old the buildings are they're decrepit they're falling apart they've got inventories they don't know what's in the i mean arriva designed machines for them that they can put a barrel in the machine and try and to kind of guess what's in there you know the kind of thing the kids play at the parties where they hold their fists out with oh what's in here what's in my left hand and what's in my right hand so it feels a bit like that so we don't need terrorists because our own government's ineptitude is probably the biggest thing that's going to cause us problems and so there's a great pressure to do something with the with the waste that we have here i'm of the joanna macy school of thought i don't believe that any government's proposals to dump waste is is uh, there's a lot of words i can't use on your show (laughs) i'll leave those to the listener's imagination but it's absolutely the most bonkers crazy making thing that anyone could seek to do is to dump it because the time scales it's going to be dangerous for it's never, it's never going to be safe for humans in any time scale like the age of the planet. That's how serious nuclear waste is. And I think most people don't actually realise that nuclear waste in any meaningful way is never going to be safe to be around humans in any time scale we could ever think of. Besides a core group of activists such as yourself, are people paying attention? And if they are, how are people in the UK responding to this nuclear information? The mainstream media, Libby, these issues aren't the issues that they want to talk about. And whenever they do, it's just very from a kind of city perspective or a government perspective or even an industry perspective. Fortunately, we have the internet. And so, yeah, people are bothered. People are organising. Our government plans to dump this waste it wants to build a repository, it wants it to be near Sellafield, it wants an illusion of communities volunteering to host the waste. The way that we're responding in the UK is that we have plans to have a protest. And actually the place where we're going to do the protest, it isn't going to be at Sellafield, it's going to be at the place that for us is the heart of the matter. So it's going to be at a place called Springfields. Springfields is the factory that produces all of the nuclear waste in the UK. Uranium ore is shipped into the UK via Ellesmere Port. It's enriched at a place called Capenhurst and then it goes to Springfields where it's made into nuclear fuel. And from there it produces all of the fuel for the whole of the UK's civil and military reactors. So the power stations, the Trident submarines, All of the fuel is built at this place. Springfields is also gearing up to produce fuel for the fantasy reactors, the small modular nuclear reactors that they like to tell us is going to be cheaper to build. And all that small modular nuclear reactors are, are reactors from nuclear submarines. 
And the reason that we have a programme of big reactors is because it wasn't very cheap to build them at that small scale. So they wanted economy of scale, which is why they started building big ones. It was quite an interesting PR stunt, how they've managed to turn it on the head and claim that small modular nuclear reactors are going to be cheaper to build. But yeah, so that's Springfields. They're, they're, that's where they build all the waste. When are you going to be doing this demonstration at Springfield so people can find out about it and possibly participate? And then what do you have planned beyond that? The protest that we have planned is for April the 27th at Springfields. People can meet there from about 12 o'clock onwards. Uh, if you go to our Facebook page, Stop New Nuclear, and our website, which is stopnewnuclear.org.uk, you can find out more information and we'll be publishing more details about the timings of the day. But that's when we have our protest planned for. Part of what we want to do, Libby, that's a little bit different, and it's partly why I wanted to come on your show and talk about it, is we're going to have a Guinness Book of Records attempt. We're going to attempt to set a record. We want to get competitive about this stuff. And we're hoping that at stateside, you folks will feel competitive too and, and, and want to beat our record once we set it. So we're going to have a try and set a record about, you know, the most people to surround a nuclear facility. We have these nuclear waste barrel costumes that we make, which are just a fab, they're a fab costume drama. They make a great photograph. People want to talk to you when you're wearing them. We're actually going to be getting people to come and wear those barrels. So one of the things we're doing in the run-up to our protest, so if any of your listeners are interested in coming, and if they're interested in having a go at making a barrel to wear on the day, you can email us at springaction2019 at stopnewnuclear.org.uk. We can arrange a workshop for you to make the barrel costumes and... The other thing is that we're going to have a live link on the day with uranium impacted communities. So if you've, I'm, I'm in touch with Leona Morgan, who I'm sure you've had on your show, Libby, about talking to some of the people from Church Rock. But if any of your listeners live in an, a uranium impacted community in the United States, in Canada, wherever you are, if you'd like to talk with us on the day of the people who are in a community that is t receiving this, this stuff from your community, we'd really like to connect our communities up to talk about, to really make real the impact and the connections between our communities. Of course, Nuclear Hot Seat will have links up to all of these email and website addresses that you have mentioned for the ease of people getting in touch. And I'm already talking with people from Church Rock about Three Mile Island, and I know that they will be interested in this as well. Any final thoughts or any final message you want to leave our listeners with today? Sometimes it feels like, you know, that David and Goliath thing, do you know, but I kind of try and turn that on its head of like, and look at it that governments have to spend an awful lot of money to keep the facade in place. And actually, even with that money, the facade is cracking. A lot of people can see what's really going on. So, you know, if you listen to this and you've not been active, please get active. If you're in the UK and you don't know how to connect in with the anti-nuclear movement, please get in touch with us through our web links. I don't know what it looks like beyond our protest. You know, we hope to really make a fuss about the plans to get rid of the waste. We really want to put that firmly on the map in the UK. 
and yeah obviously we want to stop the government's own plans but I think as far as Hinkley goes right now where we're at really is just waiting to see it all collapse under the weight of its own lies really. And may that happen soon. Just one word to remind you in the battle between David and Goliath David won. Yeah, David did one. But, you know, I, sometimes it, some, like, I, I, I don't know whether you get a sense of it, but I get a sense of it in the town where I live when there's so much construction work going on to do with the project. It, it's everywhere. It's in the air you breathe. You can't walk through the town without eating it, you know, like in terms of what's going on. And it can feel very disempowering. But like I say, I just remember that they, they have to spend, you know, it's a big lie. It's a big sham. And they have to spend a lot of money and pay a lot of people to keep that there. And the minute they can't do that, the scales will fall away for people. Here's hoping. Nikki Clark, we wish you and your group every success with not only the upcoming demonstration, but all of your activities beyond. And I want to thank you for being my guest today on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you so much for having us, Libby. It's a pleasure. That was Nikki Clark one of the founders of the UK Direct Action Group, Southwest Against Nuclear. We will have links up to all of the websites and email that she mentioned on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 400. Activist shout-out, and this is not a happy one. Condolences to Boston-based nuclear activists and all of us on the sudden, tragic death of Paula Sharga, a longtime activist. She was killed last week, hit by a cement truck while riding her bicycle in the Boston area. She was known as an activist for social and environmental causes, and for her last birthday, she urged friends and loved ones to donate to Massachusetts Peace Action Education Fund because, quote, since the 1980s, they have not wavered from their goals of ending war and promoting justice. Paula Sharga will be missed. Here's today's final thought. Four hundred episodes. Who'd have thunk it? When I started Nuclear Hot Seat in June of 2011, three months after Fukushima began, I didn't know what it was or exactly what I was doing. I just felt compelled to do something. And given my long background in broadcasting, writing, theater, and storytelling, this seemed to be it. I told myself I would keep doing the show until I didn't feel the need to do it any longer. That was almost eight years ago. And almost every week since then, full disclosure, I did miss two weeks in my first year, one while I was traveling and another when I was sick. But other than that, every week for almost eight years, I've presented another program. There have been times I really haven't wanted to especially in the first year or so, when I would mutter to myself that hitting my head against the wall until I bled from the ears would hurt less than what I was putting myself through to create this show. That was both about the tech challenges as well as the emotional toxicity of the information. But I kept going, found my footing, found my voice, and found a lot of you, and seemed to have taken a lot of people along with me. The emotional rewards have been enormous. Besides fighting back against nuclear perpetrators, the people I've met and interviewed have enriched my life beyond anything I could have imagined. From frontline players in the immediate aftermath of Fukushima, like former Japanese Prime Minister Naoto Kan and former Nuclear Regulatory Commission Chair Greg Yatsko, 
to Japanese families and medical experts and legal experts, all of whom are overwhelmed with what Fukushima has done to them personally and to their society. I've had the privilege of speaking with a brilliant array of scientists, engineers, activists, researchers, doctors, legal experts, on-the-ground activists, filmmakers, and Hollywood stars, from First Nations and Native American leaders to women who consider themselves just moms. And there are so many more. The list is so long. Thanks to a targeted donation, I'm having it compiled into a searchable database. And the list enlarges every week, one week at a time, because there are always are more people to talk with and always more information to be gained. I get asked all the time how I can possibly do this every week and have done it for so long. My glib comeback has usually been, I can't not do it. But on the occasion of my 400th episode, you deserve a more nuanced answer. So here it is. Whatever difference there is to be made in the nuclear situation, I feel an urgent need to be part of making it. My fear is that if, for whatever reason, I stop doing this work, I and we, the global we, won't get to where we have to be by the time we have to get there for humanity to survive. I feel like a mother who looks across the kitchen sees her small child reaching for a boiling pot on a hot stove burner. And as I run towards her, I scream out, No! Stop! Don't! As if it's a matter of life and death. Because it is. That's how I feel about nuclear. I want to yell at all of them, Don't! Stop it! No! It's not that I consider myself as an individual so important, but everyone who cares about this issue is important, critically important. And if I can inspire even one other person to join and stick with this fight long enough to take even one action, then maybe, just maybe, we have a chance of saving that metaphoric child of a human race from inflicting so much more planetary damage that none of us, no life, will be able to recover from it. I fight this fight by producing this show one week at a time, and I do it for the future of life itself. I only pray that nuclear hot seat, combined with all the other efforts that are being made out there, is enough, and that it's in time. And thank you for being part of this journey. And now... On to episode number 401. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, February 19, 2019. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, and our friend Hervé Courtois, miningawareness.wordpress.com, Beyond Nuclear International, Dr. Gordon Edwards and the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility, UCSUSA.org, the Cape Cod Times and the reporting of Christine Legere, WHYY.org, Environmental Working Group, AMP.AZCentral.com, Washington Post, Cleveland.com, PostandCourier.com, welcome back to Fukushima-Diary.com and Iori Mochizuki, CNN, 
Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network, express.co.uk, Bologna.org, moneyweb.co.za, BBC, the sole dead cubicle drones who push propaganda, uh, write press releases for world nuclear news, and the ever-reliable numbnuts at the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. A big shout-out to you, nuclear hot seat listeners, followers, and supporters around the world, in 123 countries on six continents and counting. And welcome to everyone who's listening on our growing network of broadcast stations here in the U.S., You show that you love life on this planet, too, by being willing to know the truth and then acting on it. As I said before, I'm thrilled that we are together on this journey as kick-ass defenders of genuine nuclear truth and supporters of atomic awareness. Thanks for visiting the Facebook Nuclear Hot Seat blog page. Blog page, not the podcast page. Facebook messed that up for me a long time ago. If you haven't been to our blog page, come on down, check it out, click like, follow, post, and share. That's also where you will find every episode of Nuclear Hot Seat posted as soon as it's ready. And if you're interested in our past episodes, they're all posted at NuclearHotSeat.com. You can get them at iTunes or just sign up for the show, why don't you? It's on the website, NuclearHotSeat.com. The yellow opt-in box, just put in your first name and your email address. We won't bug you. We won't sell it. We won't trade it. We won't do anything except send you one email a week with the link to each week's show in it. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompaniment by John Barnard, recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, I mean it. Send me an email at info at nuclearhotseat.com. And if you want to put some energy towards keeping the show running, take a moment to send a donation of any size to nuclearhotseat.com. We always appreciate and we always need the support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2019. Libby Halevi and Heartistry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that the last thing that anyone who opposes nuclear wants to be able to say is, I told you so. (laughs) Yeah, right. That is your nuclear wake-up call for the week. So please, don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb.